Have you ever woken up um, the morning of an important appointment? Maybe it was a job interview or a, a meeting with your boss at work or an important exam you had for school. And, and suddenly you had this sinking realization that you woke up, but your alarm didn't go off. And you have no idea what time it is. I've had that happen a few times. And my first feeling is a mix of panic and dread, right? Like, uh-oh, what time is it? And then I look at the clock, and let's say my appointment is at 9, and, and I meant to, to get up at 7, and, and the clock says it's 8.30. Oh, there the alarm goes. <laughs> the clock says it's 8.30. And, and now my adrenaline is rushing, and, and my next question is, is there any way that I can still make it? How fast can I get out the door to get there by 9? And now none of the plans I had for that morning to have a nice breakfast, to take out the trash, to pack a lunch, whatever, none of those seem important. The only thing that matters is getting to that appointment if I can. A few of you are smiling. This has happened to you, right? <laughs> um, there's nothing like waking up and realizing that the hour is late to get us motivated for action. And that's how the Apostle Peter begins the passage that we're looking at this morning. Right up front, he tells us what time it is. The end of all things is near. So you better wake up. The Scottish commentator William Barclay reflects on this verse and says, The simple fact is that behind this verse there is one inescapable and most personal truth. For every one of us, the time is near. The one thing which can be said of every person is that they will die. For every one of us, the Lord is at hand. We cannot tell the day and the hour when we shall go to meet him. And therefore, all life is lived in the shadow of eternity. Do you pick up the urgency here? The life that we're living isn't like a grand novel where we're just in the first or the second chapter and we've got lots and lots of time to work on the ending. It seems like that when we're young. And it's also not like a video game where if we mess up, we can just restart and have three more lives, right? <laughs> we, we've got one shot at this life, and we don't know when our life is going to end. So Peter shakes us, and he warns us that the end is, is looming before us. It's threatening to overtake our short lives at any time. And this end can mean a couple of things. For, for some, it means the great hope and the anticipation of a rich reward as we meet the love of our souls. For others, it means the sober realization that we will soon stand before the sovereign judge, the one whose eyes blaze with fire and who pierces to the heart of who we are. Either way, the end is significant. It's real. It's for keeps. And so Peter gives us a wake-up call. Just as when I woke up late for, for an appointment and the only thing that mattered was getting out of bed and getting out the door as quickly as I could, so Peter is telling us, wake up and focus on what really matters because there isn't much time. You know, in our culture, we really need to hear this. Because society today is just full of messages trying to get us focused on things which don't really matter. We'll get to see some of their best cracks at it during the Super Bowl tonight as the new commercials are rolled out. The very real danger, though, is that we'll spend most of our lives on things which in the end don't count for very much. And so Peter continues in the rest of verse 7, Therefore, be clear-minded 
and self-controlled so that you can pray. Be clear-minded and self-controlled. Literally, the Greek says, be sane and sober. Be sane as opposed to insane. Be sober as opposed to intoxicated. Only an insane person or an intoxicated person would wake up half an hour before a very important appointment and not get serious about getting moving, right? In in Luke 12, uh, 42 to 46, Jesus tells a story to illustrate this. He tells a story about a a foolish servant who has been put in charge of, of the master's other servants to make sure they all get their daily food at the proper time while the master is gone. And after a while, this this servant is doing their job, and then they think, boy, my master's taking a long time in coming back. And and so this steward beats the other servants and eats and gets drunk. And then the master comes, Jesus says, at a time when the, the foolish and wicked steward is least expecting it and punishes this wicked servant by putting him to death. Now, if the steward had known what time the master was coming, we can assume that he would have wised up and straightened out his act so that he wouldn't have faced the master's wrath. But he never woke up, never realized that the hour was late, and so he acted like a drunk and like a fool. Well, we're in luck here compared to that steward because Peter is alerting us to the fact that the master is coming. And so we can clean up our act. He's saying, don't be a fool. Don't be a drunk and think you can go on living for yourself and keep spoiling yourself on all the resources that your master has entrusted to you, which you're supposed to be using to bless and take care of others. Because your master is coming home soon to ask for an account of your stewardship. So wake up, be sane and clear thinking, be sober and self-controlled. The end is coming soon. Okay, Peter, we're awake. (laughs) You have our attention. Now what? What are the things that matter that we should focus on so we're ready when the end comes? Well, the first thing Peter tells us to do, actually he doesn't tell us, he just assumes that any sane person would do this, is to pray. He says, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So a life of prayer, according to Peter, is a symptom of sanity. Any sane person would obviously know that if the end of all things is near, we'd better be in constant communication with our master. You know, calling him, texting him on his cell so that we know what he expects when he arrives home. And so we can ask for whatever assistance we might need to make sure we do the job right. The converse of this is also true. If we aren't praying, then it's a warning to us that we're not thinking clearly that we don't see reality for what it really is. That we don't realize that this is God's world and that he has given us a job to do and that if we are busy living for ourselves instead, then we'll have to explain that to him when he returns. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Then Peter goes on, because there's more to a sane and sober life than prayer. In verse 8, he says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, Peter says, love. In other words, love 
is above all. Love is what matters most. And we saw the Apostle Paul say the same thing last week, if you were here. Love is the most important thing. And so we are to love one another deeply, the NIV says, or the King James Bible translates it fervently. The Greek word translated deeply or fervently here has two sides to it. It means earnestly, and it also means continuously. Our our love is to be eager and from the heart. It's to be earnest. And it's also to be persevering and long-lasting. It's to be continuous. This means more than just being nice to people when we feel up to it. It it means rather having a deep gut commitment to, to growing in our love for others. It means actively finding ways to do good for others, even when it hurts, even when it's inconvenient. And it means keeping at this, both when we feel like it and when we don't. Deeply, fervently. This kind of love, Peter says, covers over a multitude of sins. Because when we as a community of Christians start loving one another like this, sin will become less and less of an issue for us. Sin won't divide us because we'll be forgiving each other. Sin won't ensnare us because we'll care about each other enough to keep one another accountable, to encourage one another to stay on the right path. Sin, in many cases, will just shrivel up and wither among us because if you really love someone earnestly and continually, you can't gossip about them. You you can't lie to them. You can't cheat them. You can't stay bitter toward them. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Maybe that's why Paul said when we fulfill, or rather that we fulfill, the whole law of God when we love one another. Well, just to make sure that we know what kind of love Peter is talking about here, he gives us a practical example. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, notice first, hospitality is a command to everyone. It's not just a spiritual gift for a few. In fact, nowhere in Scripture is hospitality listed as a spiritual gift. It's always a command. Now, I know some people who are super hospitable, and they definitely have a gift. I'm not saying it's not a gift. <laughs> but, but, but what Scripture is clear is on is that hospitality is a command that pertains to all of us, whether we have the gift or not. God repeatedly in the New Testament commands his people to be hospitable. Because hospitality is a basic, practical expression of Christian love. Now, we also need to understand when the Bible uses the word hospitality that it's talking about much more than having a few folks over for a nice lunch after the church service. Let me explain. There were three reasons in the New Testament world that hospitality was important. First, there was a need to put up other Christians in your home. Christians were often on the move because they were taking the gospel message to new cities and towns that hadn't heard it yet or because they were fleeing persecution. So they were on the move. They were a mobile bunch. And the assumption was if if you went to any place where there was a church, someone would take you in. Because second, there were few inns back then where you could stay. There were no Marriott's. There were no Motel 6's. And the inns that there were, were were notorious for being expensive and filthy and seedy and immoral. Many of them doubled as brothels. And so for early Christians who were often poor and and who didn't care to be part of the brothel scene, 
and who were on the move, hospitality in someone's home was important. There was nowhere else to stay. Third, there were also no church buildings in the first century. And so Christians naturally gathered in in whoever had a decent-sized home in the church. That was where they would gather each week for worship. Um, And and as I mentioned last week, their gatherings generally included a meal. Um, and, And so to offer hospitality meant to share your home, to share your food, to share your space with others. Maybe every seventh day, maybe for days at a time. Now, any of you who have had roommates know that the saying is true, a good way to lose your friend is to move in with them. And this is especially true when you realize how poor people were back then compared to us today. Most of their homes were tiny compared to ours, and many of them had trouble trying to feed their own families, let alone guests who might stay with them for days at a time. And yet God commands them and us through the Apostle Peter here, love one another deeply, and that means offering hospitality without grumbling. One Bible interpreter says about this, This term, which means grumbling or complaining, aptly captures the quiet, I don't know why we get all the travelers, or I wish Paul would move on, (laughs) whispered in a corner to a spouse when a family was on short rations and its housing was cramped due to a visitor. That's that's the real world, right? (laughs) Nothing tests your love like hospitality. When your privacy is invaded and your routine is interrupted and your budget is stretched, So generous, willing hospitality is a great evidence of deep Christ-like love. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip to Romania, and there were about 20 other people on the team that I was part of. And our team of 20 was hosted for two weeks in the home of a poor Romanian family. They had um, built a large room, especially for guests to stay in. Um, And every day they put on a spread for all 20 of us generally a three-course meal of good hearty food. And every morning, the woman of the house would get up at five in the morning to start cooking. And after a few days, a few of us who would, actually it was the the girls because us guys weren't allowed in the kitchen um, in this Romanian home, but they would help this woman clean up after the meal. And they noticed that she was feeding her family what was left over after we had eaten. And then we began to realize that that nice chicken meal that that we were eating probably meant that that her family wouldn't have any meat that month. Yet yet this family who who maybe lived on $100 a month insisted on being hospitable to us and giving us their best. And, And we were all completely humbled at how selfish we rich Westerners are compared to this Romanian family. Peter says, the end of all things is near. So wake up, think clearly and soberly, pray and love one another deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And it's in this context that we come now to the topic of spiritual gifts. As we saw last week with Paul, it's again in the context of love that we think about spiritual gifts. Love that that results from being sane and and sober because we realize that the end of all things is near. So spiritual gifts are about sacrificial love. The the kind of love that Christ demonstrated when he, he took up the basin and the towel and he washed the grimy, stinky feet of his disciples. 
Spiritual gifts are not about us. They're about serving others. In fact, as we're about to see, if we aren't using our gifts to serve others, Peter says, we're living before God, our master, in disobedience. Because the spiritual gifts that God has given us aren't actually ours. God has given them to the body, to the whole church. And we have been entrusted with them as stewards to make sure they get used for the benefit of the body to to whom they belong. Listen to verse 10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We are stewards who have been entrusted with the grace of God, which has been given to each of us in various forms. Our gifts aren't ours. We didn't earn them. We can't take credit for them. They were given to the whole church, but they have been entrusted to each one of us by God with the understanding that we will use them for the benefit of the whole body. Now let's think about this phrase, God's grace in its various forms. I like the way the old King James translation puts it, the manifold grace of God. This word manifold is an interesting word. It means diverse. It means variegated. It means multifaceted. Over Christmas, our family was in Washington, D.C., and we visited the Natural History Museum there, and one of the things we looked at was the gem collection. The Hope Diamond is there, and some other amazing gems are there. And I remember seeing one large diamond in in particular that had this brilliant clarity to it, and, and it had been cut with a lot of facets, and each time a different facet caught the light, it sparkled brilliantly with all the colors of the rainbow. A picture can't can't do justice to it. You've got to see it in the light and see the way it, it sparkles. And, and, and that's what Peter is, is saying God's grace is like. It has many facets. Each is unique and different. And, and each of us has been given at least one facet in the form of a spiritual gift. And when we use it, we make one aspect of God's grace sparkle with glory. And as we become a community, all serving and all using our gifts, we become like that diamond sparkling with all of the facets of God's brilliant grace. As I experience God's grace through you, and you experience God's grace through me, and together we share God's grace with others. So Peter urges us, don't cover up your facet. Don't hide away your gift. Maybe you don't know what it is yet. Maybe you're tentative about using it, but you've got to uncover it. You've you've got to polish it up and put it to use. Because God has made you a steward of it. So that together with everyone else's gifts, it can shine into a brilliant manifold whole. There's nothing more beautiful than when we're all using our gifts together to be channels of God's grace to one another and to others. We become like a symphony where everyone is playing their part, working together, playing their unique role to make something larger than any one of us as individuals. I remember experiencing this when I was teaching English in Budapest, Hungary in a public high school. And a few friends who were also teachers and and I started a, a, a... Friday night youth Bible study uh, with the students that we taught. We called it Power Night. We invited them to come. Some of them came. Um, And and one teacher who was really hospitable would would host it, and they would make everyone feel really welcome, and she would make great snacks. 
Um, and two other teachers were awesome musicians and, and they would lead the singing. They would write their own songs even and sing them for us. And, and they could lead worship in such a way that we really met with God in, in that room together, sitting around in the living room. And a couple other teachers and I would take turns giving a short devotional, a little bit about God from the Bible. And these power nights were powerful times of, of, of worship and of teaching and of, of fellowship. And several students came to follow Jesus as a result of them. And one night as I was walking home after, after one of these times together, I was just struck by what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ this was. I, I couldn't sing or, or play the guitar nearly as well as some of them could. One of them's in Nashville now. She has a writing contract for writing songs and performing there. I, I couldn't express things in, in the way that, that some of the other teachers could express them. I couldn't connect with some of the kids the way others could. But, but they couldn't teach the way I could teach either. And, and there were kids they couldn't reach that I was connecting with. And, and when we all worked together, God's multifaceted grace was released. And it shone brilliantly. And I was so grateful for the gifts that others had that I didn't have to have. I could depend on them to do things that I wasn't good at. And, and so I felt relief and, and freedom in that because I didn't have to be, try to be someone who God hadn't made me. I could just be myself and I could serve with the gifts God had given me. Okay, so let's finish with the last verse and see how we're to use these gifts. If anyone speaks, Peter continues in verse 11, they, they should do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. So here Peter chooses two activities to sum up all the gifts, all the manifold gifts. There are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts. Now, when Peter talks about speaking here, he's talking about uh, something a little bit more than just the gift of gab, a gift that I know some of you have, and that's great. But, but um. He's talking about something a little more than that, but also something less formal than preaching. He, he's talking about the fact that as we saw last Sunday, in the early church, a number of people, when they would gather, would have an opportunity to speak. And there, were, there would be some teaching, there would be some prophesying, there would be those who had gifts for exhorting or encouraging others, or, or gifts of wisdom. Various people would, would speak. And, and Peter says all these people are to speak as if they are speaking the very words of God. In other words, when you're together with other believers, whether it's on a Sunday morning or it's in someone's living room or, or it's at a, a meeting, and, and it's your turn to speak, Peter's saying, don't take that lightly. Make sure you've, you've taken time to search your heart and to seek God's heart first. Make sure you're asking the Spirit to give you the right words, the right message to share. That you're not just relying on your own ideas, your own wisdom, your own thoughts. Make sure that when you speak, your only agenda is, is that you're representing God's agenda and not your own. Because your gift of speaking will only minister the grace of God to other people when you're speaking as if speaking the very words of God and not your own. Well, then Peter says there's other people in the church who have gifts of serving. These could be gifts of administration, of leadership, of giving, of craftsmanship, of helping out, many different things. And Peter says if you have one of these gifts, 
you should be using it to serve with the strength God provides. In other words, we're all sometimes called to more than we can do in our own strength. Because at, at times we get weary. We, we get discouraged. We get resentful even. We, we want to give up, right? But God loves to give his people assignments which are beyond them. So that we can learn to rely on God. And, and, and so that we, he can get the glory for what we end up accomplishing. So the main idea here is that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And the call to use our spiritual gifts is a call to trust God and to step into ministry beyond our natural abilities and our natural endurance. Because that's what spiritual gifts are. They're spirit-empowered gifts. They're not just natural human gifts. And if you've never experienced this kind of God-empowered ministry before, then there are some exciting times ahead for you. If you surrender yourself as God's servant and you ask God to use you beyond your natural abilities, beyond your natural endurance. So in the end, when God's people are using God's gifts to administer God's grace to one another in all of its various forms, then God is glorified. So Peter ends, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. The goal of it all is that God be honored. God is glorified when his people love and serve one another. When they build each other up, when they reach out together. Spiritual gifts aren't about us, they're about God. And so, do you know what time it is? Do you realize that the end of all things is near? The days of living for our own comfort and our own pleasure are over. It's time to live for God's glory. By loving one another, even to the point of sacrifice. By serving one another in the powerful strength and the God-inspired words that God gives us. So that God can be glorified.